0: This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content. to Inside Oz, the Oz Review Podcast. My name's Neil Thompson. I'll be taking you beyond the walls of the Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary in HBO's debut one-hour drama series. The main thing that I want to start off this podcast with is the reason for actually doing it. It's a couple of things that actually came from it. I'm... I post on a online forum, it's predominantly based on pro wrestling, but we have a number of threads going as well. And one of them that always pops up is something relating to Oz in some way. And one of the posters on there said, yeah, how about we have a rewatch of the series, guys, whether you've got it on DVD, whether you can watch it on demand or anything like that. And people seemed really up for it. And another thing that also made me want to do it was... Um, I listened to a Simpsons based podcast which is a four finger discount done by a couple of Australian lads and one thing that they mentioned on their podcast was how there wasn't a podcast particularly focusing on I think they mentioned The Sopranos so that got me to thinking, oh I can do a Sopranos podcast, so I dug out the Blu-rays for that, had a quick look around online as well to see if there was a podcast relating to it already, turns out that there is so that one was out of the out of the window Another HBO drama series I'd been looking to get around to watching to for a long time, The Wire. I've heard so much about it, I've had it on DVD for Christ knows how long. Probably got to about series three, and then I've never managed to make it past that point. So I figured to myself, ah, if I decide to do a podcast about it, then that gives me a reason to watch it all the way through, and I finally will do Turns out, again, there's already a podcast relating to The Wire. It's called The Wire Stripped, which is also very good. So, that then got me onto thinking, well, there's God knows how many Game of Thrones podcasts already. There's one for The Sopranos, there's another one for The Wire. And then I thought to myself, ah, we've been talking about having this rewatch of Oz. Had a quick look around to see if there were any um, podcasts relating to Oz. I found a whole bunch relating to The Wizard of Oz but nothing relating to the prison drama series. So I thought, right, that's my one. I can finally narrow down what I'm going to do my podcast on. And it's something I've wanted to do for a very long time. So it was kind of a blessing in disguise that both of these scenarios happened. The one person suggesting rewatch and somebody else talking about how this lack of particular HBO Based podcasts. Now, Oz itself in the UK was quite hard to come by, particularly on its first run when I only caught it every now and again. I used to have a small TV video combi with a rubbish, small circular metal aerial that you had to twist around in every imaginable position to try and get some sort of decent reception. And it was tucked away in the early, either the very late evening or the very early morning schedules on Channel 4. And I stumbled about it quite by accident really, just flicking through the channels late one night when you only had BBC1, BBC2, ITV and Channel 4, that's as much choice as you had. I don't even remember whereabouts in the series it was when I first came across it, but it would have been around 1999, maybe 2000, so you're probably looking either Series 3, maybe Series 4. But I can just remember coming across it one night and something about it hooked me, and it wasn't until years later, maybe 2005, 2006 maybe, uh, when I decided to get all the DVDs imported from the US on Region 1 DVD. (laughs) Rather annoyingly, as soon as I finished collecting them all, they decided to release them in the UK as well, so I could have saved myself a lot of money doing it that way. But, once I decided to start the show from the beginning, it very quickly became one of my absolute favourites and like I say, it is something I've wanted to cover for a long time. But before we get into the first episode, just a a few small tidbits on the actual creation of the show itself. Now one name that you're going to hear me constantly coming back to is that of Tom Fontana. He predominantly had a theatre background before breaking into TV. His main break on TV came when he got a job on the medical drama Saint Elsewhere. In a 1997 interview he said about how he made $5,000 a year as a playwright, yet for his first script for Saint Elsewhere he made $17,000. So he thought to himself that he'd be able to live off of the money that he made for this one script for three years. While he was on Saint Elsewhere he wrote a total of 61 story episodes... 27 of which were full episodes. From there in 1993, he started working on a show called Homicide Life on the Streets, where he also again wrote 57 story episodes, 10 of which were full ones. He was also the executive producer on that, where he executive produced all 122 episodes of that. In a 1997 interview as well he stated about the writing process of Oz, writing a drama series is always about finding an environment that has a very intense life or death situation and then putting in ordinary people and seeing how they deal with an extraordinary situation. He described it as the logical descent into madness following on from doing a medical drama when he was on and elsewhere in a cop show uh, when he was on Homicide Life on the Street. He researched for a couple of years before starting the actual writing process. He also shopped the show around to a number of networks in the US, but a lot of them wouldn't touch it because of the subject matter. All they wanted were shows about lawyers, shows about doctors, and shows about lifeguards. Um, Originally the show was to be called Club Med, and set in a medium security prison but he changed this because he didn't feel that a medium security prison had enough balls to it another title that was considered was The Max but MTV already had a show titled Max so that's with two X's because you know it's cool and that was unrelated to prison so Tom Fontana once went, went back to the drawing board on that one and he remembered the prison near to where he lived in Buffalo, New York is Attica where they had the famous riot and he remembered the warden at the time was called russell oswald so as sort of a backhanded tribute to uh, the warden at the time he decided to call the prison in this series the oswald prison which then got abbreviated simply to oz so once he had settled on the title of oz for his series he did He took the show to HBO. So HBO in America, it's a pay channel. So there's a lot less restrictions on what you can present as opposed to a... Commercial network in America where obviously it has to pass the FCC and number of censors. HBO told him, We don't care if the characters are likable so long as they're compelling. Fontana has also said, A prison is a well that's small. We're all sort of in a prison in our daily lives. Another name that you'll see attached to Oz throughout the entirety of his run is that of Barry Levinson. Barry got his start in writing on the Tim Conway Comedy Hour. He also wrote um, on High Anxiety in 1977, which is the uh, Mel Brooks comedy, before moving into more serious roles, and he's probably most famous for being the director on Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, Bugsy, Toys... And then into the mid 90s, he also did Disclosure and Sleepers. He was also a producer on Donny Brasco. So without further ado, let's talk about Oz, episode one in series one. The title of the episode is The Routine. It was originally broadcast on July the 12th, 1997. It holds an 8.7 rating on IMDb. It's written by Tom Fontana and directed by Darnell Martin. So here we go. We're all on our way to prison. <laughs> That's the name on the street for the Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary. Oz is retro. Oz is retribution. You want to punish a man? Separate him from his family. Separate him from himself. Cage him up with his own kind. Oz is hard times doing hard times. So, immediately, there is loads of barbed wire everywhere. Straight off the bat, we know this is a bad place where bad people go. Augustus Hill, played by Harold Perrineau, introduces us to the Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary. It's 9am, and we're getting shown some incoming inmates, and straight off the bat, I'm like, oh my god, that's Terry from Wayne's World. We see one inmate get stabbed in the chest by another, who's managed to sneak in a knife in the sole of his shoe. From there, Beecher starts banging away on the bars. Tobias Beecher there, played by Lee Tergerson, who I a moment ago just referred to as Terry from Wayne's World. When they were filming this scene, he lost feeling in his index finger and has never had it come back since. From there we meet Tim McManus, who is played by Terry Kinney, and Warden Leo Glynn, and like, the second holy shit moment of the episode, it's Winston from Ghostbusters! Leo asks McManus straight off, don't you ever knock, so you already know that there's a bit of a, somewhat of a rocky relationship between the two. McManus says that he wants the prisoners for Emerald City. One thing that always bothered me about this scene is why is McManus wearing that baseball cap? It turns out this is a reshoot done a couple of months later and Terry Kinney had gotten a haircut in the meantime, so he came up with the idea of wearing a cap so that it was able to match up with everything else that you see later in the episode. We then see McManus and Leo taking a walk through the prison. This is, again, this is another reshoot, just kind of to give you an idea of the actual layout of the building more than anything else, rather than just setting it all in one room. McManus says that he wants Donald Grove's to come to Emerald City as well, and um, Leo questions his logic on that, seeing as Groves is accused of murdering his family and eating them. He's uh, somewhat of a cannibal prisoner. McManus comes across as somewhat of a, an idealist in this scene, and he seems to be of the thinking that everybody can be healed. That might be possible, and it's certain you can certainly see that his intentions are good, but is he the man to put them into practice he comes across it's kind of like jeremy Corbyn 20 years before jeremy Corbyn. leo says that he can have groves if he takes uh markstrom mcmanus at this point says that he has complete control over cell block 5 which is where we find out uh which is where emerald city is he says that markstrom is just a petty drug dealer and he's already got enough of those and from there you find out that markstrom is actually leo's Uh, a relative of his. From there we get the routine speech from Officer Diane Whittlesley. In Emerald City we got rules. Got a lot more rules than anywhere else in Oz. Your cell is your home. Keep it clean. Spotless. You are to exercise regularly. Attend classes. Go to drug and alcohol counseling. You are to work in one of the prison factories. You are to follow the routine. We tell you when to sleep, when to eat, when to piss. There is no yelling, no fighting, no fucking. Follow the rules. Learn self-discipline. Because if you'd had any self-discipline, any control over yourself at all, you wouldn't be sitting here now. Questions? Yeah, can I go to the bathroom? Suck it in, tough guy. So that was Edie Falco as Officer Diane Whittlesley. She had actually worked with Tom Fontana previously on a TV movie called Firehouse. And in this scene as well, one of the new prisoners Tobias buy a They were actually husband and wife together on Homicide Life on the Street. So the new inmates are introduced to their sponsors. Groves there with the shaggy long brown hair is introduced to Bob Rebrider. Immediately put on the back seat as he licks his hand and Reba trying to make it look like it's perfectly normal. Just try to shake it off as best as a man licking hand can be. We see Mark Strom as well is introduced to Jefferson Keane. The fact that they throw up gang signals to each other, it begs the question, do they know each other already? Have they both been in jail? Has one of them been in jail before? We don't totally know the background of their relationship. And then Beecher gets paired up with Dino Ortolani as his sponsor. Dino, the very stereotypical Italian-American if you will. He wants nothing to do with Beecher. It's just, he's been forced into this. He wants nothing to do with this sponsorship program. So it's at this point where we get our first prisoner introduction which becomes a staple for the series in which we get a number followed by a name. It's a complete dehumanization of the characters. Like, for example here, it's Prisoner number 97B412, Tobias Beecher. His actual name is It's a complete afterthought to his prison number. This is followed up by the crime that they are in for, followed usually by a flashback, and here we find out that Tobias was convicted on July the 5th, 1997. Crime that he's in for driving whilst intoxicated and vehicular manslaughter. And the sentence is usually tapped onto the end, We find out that poor Beecher has got 15 years, but he is up for parole in four. As part of his flashback, we see him swerving all over the road and he ends up hitting a young girl. The new inmates grab their new bedding, some clothes, and then we are off and we see Emerald City for the first time. And as explained by Augustus Hill again, normally the guards lock prisoners away, but here they are with them. 24 hours a day. We see that the space has two levels with cells on both of them and have glass doors rather than the iron bars. There is nowhere to hide for these people in this new, almost futuristic kind of prison. Um, If anybody's ever seen the film Fortress with Christopher Lambert, you'll kind of get an idea of where this is coming from. The long pullback shot that we get at the start of it, it gives a real sense of enormity to the place. So we move on to 11am and... Dino is hanging by the phone booth. Dino is still being short with Beach, but he does offer him some advice, and that is to get a weapon. It's day one; it's not even lunchtime, and Beach has already been told to arm himself. You just got to think, what the hell has this poor sod got himself into? We see Dino being aggressive with another inmate who's using the phone. He's creeping Dino out by touching himself on the nipple. Max max Beach for his phone code and forces him out of the line. It's an early power play from Markstrom. Going back to what we were saying before when he was throwing up the gang signals to Keane, this guy has definitely been in prison before. Next up, we're on to the cafeteria, and we are introduced to Pois, and he's telling a poem about having his cigarettes stolen. I could have sworn i seen a motherfucker in my cell going through my personal effects. He fingers fingering my cigarettes. Came out like nothing was happening, whistling he tune. So I mushed his ass like, move, motherfucker, make room. Hey, Ain't that my cigarette hanging off the tip of your lip? I ain't even give him a chance for he confession Just leveled his ass with all that aggression Left rights to the dolex Ha 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 Foots to the chest Uppercuts to the grill I'm like kill He's like chill. Take that for, for me even being in this place Take that for that fucking CO Baton across my face Feel that for that lawyer who ain't give two fucks about me And feel this, feel this me being enslaved by poverty, motherfucker. Give me them damn cigarettes. Oh, these is Marlboros. I, don't, I, don't, I don't smoke these. We get a quick introduction of the Italian group as Beecher asks Dino if he can sit with him. Why he asked him that, I've no idea. It's not like anything would have changed in the last couple of hours. He then goes over and asks Rebido, who he recognises from the sponsorship meeting when he first got there, if anybody's sitting with him. Ribido politely says, you. So it's not like everybody in Oz is a murdering psychopath. There are some of what you would call Beecher's kind in there as well. If you look behind Rebido in this scene as well, you can see the Muslims sat as their own group sat behind him. You already get the impression of Oz being almost like some sort of tribal warfare, which is an element that remains with the series. Rebido tells Beecher about some thoughts he's been having. He also reveals that he knows Beecher's wife's name and proclaims that God told him as he looks up to the sky which is a great bit of comic timing just as Leo's voice comes over the PA. He informs the inmates that smoking will be prohibited in the prison at the end of the month. Obviously, this doesn't go down well and a massive fight breaks out in the cafeteria, and there are people just fighting anybody that's near them, anybody and everybody. Nobody's done anything to each other, but they are throwing down good and proper. Anything can set these guys off. And the scene closes with Beecher looking absolutely horrified, as he looks on at one man just pounding another guy's face in. The smoking ban that's referenced here was something that was actually coming into effect into prisons in the US in 1997 as well. We cut to one of the prison work factories, where Beecher nearly puts his foot in it by saying that he's not used to this kind of work to Augustus. It's a perfectly innocent comment, but in Oz it is something that could very easily be taken the wrong way, and really he should now be thinking, you know, I'm in a place with bad people, I need to be careful. 5pm rolls around and Beecher can't believe that they get locked up at 5pm even though the light's out isn't for another 5 hours, and he asks Rebido, what do I do for another 5 hours, to which he quite chillingly just tells him, try to keep breathing. (laughs) It was at this point where I got the impression, certainly when I was re-watching, that Beecher is going to be the main character of the show, and we're going to be following him on his journey for however long he ends up being in Oz. Beecher turns around and then he sees that his new cellmate, Simon Adebisi, is going through his stuff and tells him to get off, that's mine. Instantly regrets this choice, as Adebisi clearly not to be messed with. It's probably safe to say that Beecher hasn't interacted with African-Americans in his outside life. We've got a quick shot of another inmate looking over at this situation as it's going on. The character of Simon Adebisi was originally written just as a generic African-American street tough, but the part was rewritten once Adewale Akinoui Agbaj, and I apologise if I've butchered the pronunciation of that name there. The part was rewritten to reflect his Nigerian heritage when he came into audition. Just a quick point here as well, just to make sure that I don't have trouble with the pronunciation of his name there anymore, I'm gonna simply refer to him as Aduwali for the rest of the podcast. As it gets to 10pm and the lights go out, we see Diane and she just says, there's something in the air and it ain't love we see Adabizi getting off the toilet and when I was rewatching really watching this, it's the first time I've ever noticed, he doesn't wipe his hands, he goes over to Beecher who's Bless him, trying to <laughs> stay as far away from this man as he possibly can. He grabs him by the groin and says, I won't be fucking you, Prag, at least not tonight. He's sort of already sexually assaulted him by grabbing Breach's groin but in all fairness, he did just say that he wouldn't be fucking him. He didn't say anything about assaulting him. A little bit of prison slang there as well. A prag, basically a prison bitch. And we fade to black. Day two, and everybody's up at 7am. Beecher is in the cafeteria where we meet Vern Schillinger for the first time, played by J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons, he goes on to have an incredible career post-Oz, but I'll talk about that in a future episode. He seems a nice enough guy, and he asks Beecher if he can sit with him, mirroring how Beecher was acting the day before, however Beecher now completely indifferent and refuses a handshake. Either he's been completely broken already or he's he's actually got his guard up a little bit, which is probably very wise. Schillinger says that Adebisi tried the same with him when he first got to Oz and that he asked McManus if he could switch to another pod. Beecher's eyes practically pop out of his head as he sees a way out of this situation that he's found himself in. Schillinger, he he puts over Adebisi very well by telling Beecher not to say... ...the reason for the switch is to do with Adabizi, ...basically saying that he will kill you if you if he finds out. He then says to Beecher to make sure that he gets some armour... ...and he shows Beecher that he's wearing the phone book underneath his shirt. I hope he's got one in, the, in his back as well, rather than just over his stomach. So, we're only on day two. Beecher's been told to get a weapon, to get armour... The next two people are probably going to tell him to get a shield and a horse at this rate. We cut to Beecher grabbing his stuff as he moves cells, but Adebisi gets in close to him one more time. As Schillinger comes over, tells him to back off, and we get a very... Very short but very intense little standoff, Adebisi asking who are you telling the back off, Schillinger just simply saying you boy. The casual racism there should have really been a bit of a red flag to Beecher that something wasn't quite right, but before the whole thing can escalate, Diane steps in and it just reaffirms that everybody has been watched at all times. Beecher leaves with Schillinger but not before Adebisi sends in one last air kiss. Adebisi breathes against the glass as well. He really establishes a very dominant persona very early on with his limited screen time that he's had. Beecher starts to unpack his stuff, to which Schillinger asks him if he's Jewish or not. Beecher just tries to laugh it off, saying, I don't even like Barbara Streisand, which I always find far more humorous than I really should do. And Schillinger shows Beecher his tattoos, tells him that Beecher will have to get some ink himself. Beecher looks completely reluctant to this. I can't imagine he comes from any kind of background where he would have that sort of interaction with people who have tattoos. Van insists that he's going to brand him himself. Beecher then completely freezes, saying that livestock gets branded. The tone in which he says it, it's a very... Oh shit, I realise what's actually happening now. Schillinger loves the idea of calling Beecher his livestock and tells him that his ass belongs to him before caressing his face. The setup in the scene here, you've got Schillinger sat on the top bunk... As Beecher sat below, he reaches down and caresses his face. doesn't even look him in the eye when he does it, it just reaffirms his dominance. We cut to night time and we see Beecher getting branded with a swatch sticker on his ass as Schillinger uses some sort of homemade in-prison tattoo kit. Morning time on day three, Beecher can't even bring himself to get out of bed now. He's already completely broken by his situation. We get our first shakedown, which is a random inspection for contraband and drugs. We see Leo and McManus walking through Emerald City saying that they need to do something about the drug problem in Oz. Even with a new high-tech cell block, drugs are still a problem in the prison. Leo suggests that the best way to counteract this would be to have a week-long lockdown, sort of a why punish one person when you can punish everybody. Next up, we have a meeting in the library between the staff and officer Mike Healy is giving out to McManus's idea of having quiet time for the inmates. McManus walks in, says to him, basically, if you listen to... What he actually meant by the proposal is that he wants to take some of the glamour away from, as he calls it, surviving Oz. The use of the word surviving is very telling there. Leo brings up the smoking ban from earlier, to which Mamanus says that he thinks it's more bullshit and questions how the hell are they going to enforce it. Leo tells him it's a direct order from the governor. Mamanus lets him know what he thinks of the governor, saying how he thinks the governor is going to... reinstate the death penalty, slash their budget, and how he is going to incite a riot. So that's the first reference to a riot in this series, you'll want to keep that ticking over. Leo says that he's not happy with the new rules, that he just has to enforce them, and he's aware that the cigarettes will go underground much like how drugs do, they, they act as a form of currency in prison usually. He then changes the subject, moving on to talk about another incoming inmate named Kareem Saeed. Leo makes it known to all the staff about the potential situation that could arise from Saeed's arrival due to him blowing up a white-owned warehouse, and says that he ha- they have to treat him with kid gloves, basically, because Saeed's still in an appeals process. Once that's out of the way, he can be buried away in Gen Pop. Gen Pop meaning the general population, so that is the rest of the prison. When you look at the production design in this scene as well, you'll see Emerald City is a new part of the prison, so everything is brand new, it's all nice and shiny compared to the other parts of the prison, like what we've seen in the library here, like when we saw the cafeteria earlier, everything's all grey and it's battered and broken down. This came from Tom Fantana visiting real-world prisons from when he was researching the show. We are introduced to Kareem Saeed, prisoner number 97S444, and we see him going through the booking in process and then we cut to him talking to McManus and Leo in McManus's office. In M-City we treat each other the way that we would like to be treated we treat each other with respect and what happens when one of us does not respect the other there's violence then prison life isn't all that different to the outside world your celebrity status doesn't buy you any extra advantages here. All my prisoners are equal <laughs> <laughs> how ironic To finally be an equal in a place where I do not have the freedom to enjoy it. You do the work assigned you, you stay out of trouble, we're going to get along just fine. Otherwise, you go into the general population in Karim, in the rest of Oz, nobody's treated the way that they would like to be treated. Then I consider myself Warren. I've read a couple of your books. I know the influence that you can have over other men, so I'm hoping we can work together, make everybody stay here more productive. I would like to help my brothers live a full life. so would we all. Anything else we can tell you? No. I do have one thing I can tell you. What's that? 78% of the population at Oswald State Penitentiary are men of color. The ratio is, at last count, one officer for every nine prisoners. We could take this prison anytime we wanted. You could take it, but you wouldn't be able to keep it. Well, that remains to be seen. Are you telling me you intend to start a riot? What I'm telling you is, as of today, I run. Don't you fuck with me, my brother. Officers. Assalamu alaikum, brother. Kareem is taken to Emerald City and all eyes are on him, particularly from the group of the Nazis, the Italian group that we saw earlier on. Augustus narrates over Kareem entering Emerald City, saying that there is a constant undercurrent of fear and hate in Oz. Oz was one of the first shows to have a regular Muslim character in Karim Saeed, played here by Eamon Walker, who's a British actor. He was actually recommended by Linda LaPlante, who quite famous for Prime Suspect in Great Britain in the early 90s. His most prominent role up to this point, certainly on British television, was when he played PC Haynes in The Bill. Probably played him for about 50 episodes, maybe a few more. He also had a number of bit parts in British sitcoms, such as Birds of a Feather, The Upper Hand, and One Foot in the Grave. We move on to 6am, and Dino is woken from his sleep. We get the flashback to his crime, similar to how we did with Beecher earlier on, and we see that he is in Oz for shooting two men coming out of a bar. Next up, we meet Sister Peter Marie, played by Rita Marina. She laughed when she was told that she'd be playing the part of a nun. She said, "Yeah, I've played hookers, I've played drug addicts, it's complete opposite of what she'd ever done before. And she's also said that she was thrilled not to have to wear a habit like a typical nun. So Sister Pete says to McManus that they've got to talk. About what? Well, sex. Sister, you're insatiable. It's a great little back and forth between the two. Sister Peter asks if Tino has done anything to earn his conjugal visit, saying that it's his fourth since January. We get more great back and forth with McManus saying that four times in a year, that's more than he had when he was married, to which Sister Pete just says, maybe that's why you're divorced. McManus says that he can have six hours for his conjugal visit, to which Sister P says, I hope he's not a premature ejaculator. A great little scene between the two. It's probably the most human that anybody's been in the show so far. We're back in the cafeteria and we meet Nino Shibetta for the first time and we see that he has his meals brought to him in exchange for cigarettes. So he's clearly a man with a certain amount of power. The Italians gossip about Gro's eating his mother. Nino asks, what's wrong with this country? In the old days murder was murder. If you killed somebody it was business and you sure as Christ didn't eat them. (laughs) and he mentions about how things never change. Back in Emerald City, we see Kareem holding court with the other Muslims. Diane has a whisper to one of her colleagues as both of them watch on, just once again just showing that everybody is constantly being watched in Emerald City. Schillinger approaches Saeed, but he doesn't say anything, instead goes and sits down with Dina, who you see in the background for the scene. Schillinger says that Saeed is a threat and tells Dina to tell Nino, that they need to stick together, they being the Nazis and the Italians. It's the first real evidence of an alliance between the different groups, rather than them all just looking out for themselves. It also differs from earlier on when Nino had his food brought to him. That was just in exchange for some cigarettes. In the DVD commentary, Tom Fontana says that when he was writing Kareem Said that he read parts of the Quran and picked out parts that were the same as in the Bible, wanting what Saeed was saying to be common between all religions, rather than differing from each other. We see the homeboys, which is Jefferson Keen, who we saw earlier on, along with adabizi They approach the Muslims. As Saeed is on his knees praying, Adebisi asks him if he'd like to suck his dick. Adebisi plays a lot of sexual games, but his sexuality isn't really known at this point, but he just uses it as a somewhat of a power game. Jefferson Keane says to Saeed to stop talking to his boys about not dealing drugs. Saeed makes it known how Muslims are for peace and non violence It's at this point where Saeed makes one of his Muslim brothers punch him in the face repeatedly as Jefferson Keane looks on. Keane calls him crazy and leaves. It's a great showing of leadership from Saeed, showing that he has complete control over his group. Jefferson Keane, played here by Leon, probably most famous at certainly at this time for starring in Cool Runnings, said that he liked the project, but he would only commit to four episodes, so we'll see how that works out for him as we go through. We move on to 3pm as the Italians are sat playing cards and Joey D'Angelo, played by comedian Goodfellow Mike G, says to Dino that Ryan O'Reilly is coming to us today. Dino gets very upset about this, to which Nino tells him to watch himself, Dino is seeing red. He he can't believe that Ryan O'Reilly is coming to him. We don't know who Ryan is yet at this point, but I'm sure we're going to find out. Dino tells him, you ain't going to do a fucking thing unless I tell you so. Once again, just reaffirming his leadership. We cut to the gym and we see Dino hitting the boxing speed bag and we once again see his crime flashback. One of the men that he shot earlier on is coming into the prison presumably that's going to be Ryan O'Reilly. We reach the 5pm count and we see that beach is still in bed. He hasn't even managed to get out of bed. Completely broken. We get another shot of Dino awaking from his sleep again. Yep. Is this a recurring insomnia that he has? Is it something that's just starting? It's not, not really made clear. We then cut to the Italians in the cafe and we see that the black man from the phone booth earlier on looking at Dino, the inmate we saw from a couple of moments ago, enters the cafeteria and Dino stands up before Nino pulls him back down. There's clearly Clearly a history between the two of them. It's at this point where we do get the official confirmation that this is Ryan O'Reilly. He goes over to Jefferson Keane, says that he hears that he can take care of a little business for him. Business? I I don't know what he could possibly mean by that. (laughs) Says that he wants to have Dino airhold and that he's willing to pay. Keane shoves Ryan's food at him, telling him they don't kill wise guys. So, it's... Jefferson obviously knows where his bread's buttered. He doesn't want to... Off Nino Shabetta. Maybe the alliance between the homeboys and the Italians is stronger than we realise. We cut to a dark corridor where we see Officer Healy having a smoke, and then Ryan O'Reilly approaches, says that his brother says hello, so there's obviously some sort of pre existing relationship between those two. Both having Irish surnames, stereotype would suggest that all Irish people know each other. Ryan is now trying to get Officer Healy to take out Dino Adelani Healy says that he's on self-destruct and not to worry about it we see Dino going for a shower and he's followed by the man from the phone booth and from the cafeteria earlier on the homeboys are all watching TV It looks like some sort of basketball game that they're playing the camera moves around we see Rebido's playing a card game and we see that Beach is still in his pod. The Muslims are all praying, and we see Schillinger mocking them as well. It's at this point we cut to Dino punching the black man in the face in the showers. We don't see what started this fight, but we can only assume what has started it. Presumably the black man who was touching his own nipple earlier on has made some sort of unwanted advance... Onto Dino. Three officers run in, and Dino ends up breaking one of their noses, while it takes another two to bring him under control. The prison's placed on lockdown, and the man's wheeled away on a stretcher. We find out that this man is actually Jefferson Keane's brother, so there's a bit of conflict already between the homeboys and the Italians. The room that was used for this... Shower fire, it's never seen again in the rest of the series. (laughs) This is because it was filmed in Baltimore as part of the pilot presentation for HBO. We see Dino getting his hand stitched up as we're introduced to Dr. Gloria Nathan, played by Lauren Velez, and then I realise, oh, that's, what's her face from Dexter? Which is kind of ironic, because I remember her, but I don't remember her character's name. She tells Dino that if Billy doesn't pull through, that he's up for murder. Dino's completely unfazed by this, he says that he's already in for life for the attempted murder of two people, so what's one more murder gonna matter? There's a little bit of flirting between the two, and we find out that Gloria is married at this point. Lauren Velez and John Cedar, who plays Dino Ortolani, they actually worked together on a film prior to Wars called I Like It Like That. We cut to Tim McManus's office as he's catching a cockroach. It always makes me laugh, as Terry Kinney when he's catching this cockroach. He nearly crushes the legs of it with the glass. McManus tells Healy to take the cuffs off of Dino when he brings him in, which Healy doesn't seem too sure considering what Dino's just done, but... McManus insists it's a great showing of not being afraid of the prisoners. McManus places Dino to work in the AIDS ward as a punishment for the fight. Dino then throws the cockroach at McManus. There's another version of this scene in which John Cedar cut his hand. Um, It was actually the first take of the first day of the first shoot for the series. And because he cut his hand, they had to incorporate Dino's bandaged hand into the rest of the episode, which is why we got that scene earlier on with Dr. Nathan. We cut to one of the prison pods in which Ortolani is saying to Shibeta that he needs to do something about his work placement, but Shibeta says that he doesn't have to do anything and gets angry when Dino raises his voice to him. Says that he needs to think with his head. All of this is said as Shibeta is sat on the top bunk. He's kind of sitting in a similar position to Buddha. Much like Schillinger earlier on and McManus's office being located in a high position in Emerald City, it's establishing a position of dominance and almost reinforcing a god complex that people seem to have. We cut to the AIDS ward in which Dino shows some appalling bad manner as he force-feeds Emilio Sanchez. Gloria then starts to reaffirm this to Tim McManus about Dino when she's talking to him in the, in the staff room. Manus says that he's trying to break the pattern of sending Dino to the hole. Now, the hole, which we'll see a number of times throughout the course of the series, an inmate is completely naked in this place and left in a cell for a preset amount of time, depending what it is that they've done. If you've ever seen Toy Story 3, it's basically like the sandbox that Mr Potato Head gets put in. Gloria suggests to McManus about giving Dino four milligrams of lorazepam, This is a drug in which he can be sedated, and as a result he wouldn't be able to harm anyone, and he gets a great buzz off of it. McManus asks Gloria out. Now, we found out earlier on that she was married, but at this point we find out that she's actually separated. This is a completely different side of McManus from what we've seen earlier on, where he's re-establishing authority in his role. We return to the kitchen and Jefferson's talking about his brother being in a hospital, at which point we see Ryan is eavesdropping. Officer Healy comes over and sort of tries to provoke Keane, calling his brother a fag and saying that it runs in families. (laughs) Very funny line here when Healy asks Jefferson if he's a fag too. Jefferson just says, why don't you suck my dick and find out? (laughs) Everybody leaves but we see a very quick look between Officer Healy and Ryan O'Reilly, a knowing look to each other. Like, you know that something's coming. Ryan sticks around and has a bit of a talk with Jefferson. Jefferson tells a member of his crew named Johnny Post, played by Tim McAdams, who looks a bit like Rob Caggiano, who used to be in Anthrax and now plays in Volbeat. Jefferson tells him to go kill Dino in the hole. Ryan interjects at this point, saying that Dino's actually working in the AIDS ward, which he finds hilarious. Ryan says that he can get Post reassigned to the AIDS ward. Quite how... We don't really know at this point, presumably through his pre existing relationship with Officer Healy. Keen says, just do it when the time is right for all of us. Back in Emerald City, we see Dino watching Felix the Cat on TV. Schillinger approaches him, and says, Thank you f- from the Aryan Brotherhood for what he did to Billy Keane." Obviously, Aryan's not fans of homosexuals in any way. Dino isn't having any of it and tells Vern to do one, basically. <laughs> Schillinger leaves, but not before calling Dino a greaseball. So, it's a very veiled thank you for doing that, but I still absolutely hate you. We see Dino once again being woken from his sleep. He looks out at his pod this time though, and he sees Said praying. It's six AM and Said is praying to Mecca. We cut back to the AIDS ward and we see Dino and Sanchez having a conversation about their daughters. Dino seems really surprised that Sanchez has a child. He presumed that, you know, he has AIDS. He must he must be gay, obviously. At this point, I had to ask, why are the beds so far away from the walls? Is it just so that they can get this shot going around the bed? As it turns out, this is the only shot that they had of this one tape. They didn't film any covering shots for it, so they were stuck with this one. Dino asks Sanchez, why did you get AIDS? Yeah, as if as if it was his choice. Sanchez says that he loves heroin and asks if Dino does. Dino says that you know he never did heroin, but he sold plenty of it. To which Sanchez says, yeah, maybe he got it meaning the drug, obviously, from Dino, which Dino then takes the wrong way and storms out. We cut to Johnny Post putting a shank into his back pocket. A shank is another example of prison slang. It's basically a homemade weapon, different from what we saw at the start of the episode, of the inmate bringing in a knife. He approaches Dino and tells him that they're going to be working together in the AIDS ward. McManus approaches and Johnny Post hightails it out of there, obviously not the time to be carrying out what he was meant to be doing, Dino tells that Manus, despite all his good intentions and reforms, nothing is going to change. So he's echoing what Shibeta was saying earlier on. But Manus goes to Sister Pete's office. He tells her to cancel Dino's conjugal and that he can have family time. Another great line from Sister Pete here saying, Family? He's Italian, that could mean upwards of a hundred (laughs) people. Sister Pete, she's fantastic, she's been the best thing about this episode so far. McManus says that it can be just his wife and kids, and that they have to be behind the glass. This leads us into our next scene. Dino says that his wife needs to forget about him and go on with her life, and to never come back to us. This was another scene that was shot for the HBO pitch. The visiting room that we see in the rest of the series, it's completely different from what we see in this one. Fontana said in the DVD commentary, because real prisons are so noisy, they constantly had to play with what you could hear and what you didn't hear for the scene, which is an interesting thing going forward. We're back in the AIDS ward. Well, just off from the AIDS ward, really. We're in Gloria's office, and Johnny Post and Dino are playing cards and smoking. Johnny Post asks if... Dino has ever wondered what it's like to burn someone's eye out which seems a bit of a random question to be asking. Gloria enters and asks them to leave but not before telling Dino that he needs to go and change Sanchez because he's had an accident and to give him a sponge bath. We see Dino changing Sanchez to which Sanchez is confiding in Dino that he wants to die and he asks him to help him basically asking him to carry out euthanasia. Dino goes to give him a cigarette but Sanchez turns away from it. He's completely given up on life at this point Dino goes into the toilet stall punches a wall clearly getting frustrated at this point who pops his head over the, the stall in the next place it's Ryan O'Reilly how long has he been waiting there what if Dino didn't decide that he needed to go to the toilet at that time how long was he going to wait standing there if you look at this scene as well Ryan O'Reilly's arms keep changing between the two shots In some they're resting on top of the stall in others the crossed. it's quite distracting. Ryan tells Dino he's got no hard feelings about Dino trying to make buns, which is earning his street cred. Dino tries to provoke Ryan by saying he, that he ratted out to the DA. It's at this point that Ryan says that he's coming to Emerald City, to which he says, how about that, me and you, side by side for the rest of our lives, unless I get parole in 12. Just rubbing it in a little bit that you know Dino is in for life. We don't know what Ryan is in for at this point, but obviously it's not as serious a crime as what Dino's committed. It's at this point that Dino loses it completely. He hits Ryan and they have a brawl in the stall. Lots of blood is all over the wall and Dino shoves Ryan's head down the toilet before leaving. Out in the corridor, Dino drops to his knees knowing that he's gone messed up again and there are going to be consequences to it this time. He's messed up again. Said approaches Dino in the corridor to which they reference back to Saeed being able to take a punch from the earlier scene. Saeed says to Dino that he has some of the answers. Is he trying to convert Dino at this point, or is he just trying to be somebody that he can talk to? We go back to the AIDS ward as we see Dino suffocating Sanchez with his pillow. It's sort of an act of mercy on Dino's side, it's him stepping up. He knows that he's not going to be going back to the AIDS ward after he's had this fight with Ryan, so after what Gloria said to him earlier about the least you can do is let Sanchez die in his own shit let him die with some dignity it's it's Dino stepping up to the mark and giving Sanchez what he wants we see Gloria telling McManus that Dino has killed somebody and that he has to stop him at this point Dino's is thrown to the ground by a, a couple more officers McManus tries to break it up but he's pushed aside by the officers and they just carry on clubbing away at Dino we cut to another room and we see that Dino's strapped down to a bed and it, he's tensing his body he's trying to get away but he just can't McManus and Gloria enter the room they restrain him and This is where Gloria administers the lorazepam. Very fast-acting drug, (laughs) this. It must be about ten seconds between the needle going in, them leaving the room, locking the door, and Dino being out completely. Augustus delivers one final monologue about life as being free in a different way, in their acceptance that they're going to die in prison. It's at this point where Johnny Post is let into the room by another officer. We don't know who he is, and... To the best of my recollection, we don't see him again. He slips the officer some money, so there's a bribe going down as well, and then he covers Dino in lighter fluid. Dino is still under the influence of the lorazepam here, so he he isn't even reacting to anything getting poured on him. Johnny Post then tosses a match on him, and we fade to black. I thought that was going to be the end of the episode, but then there's one final scene tacked on at the end, as we see McManus looking at Dino's file, which includes photos of Dino's burnt body. We fade to black again, and we roll the credits. One final note from the DVD commentary here. Fontana told HBO that he wanted to kill a main character in the pilot, as it's never been done before, to which HBO was supportive. It also gives that feeling that nobody is safe, anybody can go at any time which any fan of Game of Thrones would be able to tell you too. So that is the first episode of Oz, the routine the body count for this episode in the space of one hour we have a body count of two. My MVP of the episode as well, Sister Pete, she... Added some much needed comic relief. She just broke up the intensity very well here. That is everything for season one episode one the routine. Let me know what you thought of the episode, what you liked, what you didn't like, or any other comments that you've got to make. You can email the show at insideouspodcast at gmail.com. You can follow it on Twitter at podcast and you can also follow it on Instagram at podcast My name's been Neil Thompson, I'll see you next time for Episode 2, Visits, Conjugal, and otherwise.